This podcast is brought to you by Brunner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbrunner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you, too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. My guest today is known as an expert on resilience and with good reason. She has enjoyed success at some of the highest levels of sports, television news, and corporate America, and at the same time, endured failures, traumas, including a devastating car accident that put her at the center of a major news story. Through it all, she developed resilience and a framework to not only help herself, but others as well to move more easily through whatever their this tragic moment is. I'm honored to introduce to you my friend, Nina Sassaman-Pogue. Nina, welcome to the show. Hi, Liz. It is an honor to be here and so good to see you. It's so good to see you. Boy, life is a series of plot twists, isn't it? And often when something horrible <laughs> happens in our lives, what you call a this, everyone has a this, and sometimes several thises. I don't know if that's a word, but we just made it up. <laughs> the problem is the this doesn't usually fit into the story of the life we've been creating or what we hoped for. Define for us what a this is or can be. Well, I use the word this all caps, capital T, capital H, capital I, capital S for the big things that happen in our life that actually take our life in a new direction. These are things that we can't just get back on track and put things back where they were, keep going down the same path. Something like a divorce or a major illness or getting fired from our job. Like we have a plan, but the plan's not going to happen the way it was going. And there's really no way to go back exactly on that same course. We have to adapt somehow in a positive way and go on and reset our goals. Those are the big thises. And then there's the little, the everyday capital T H I S is that we, sometimes they just knock us off track for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then we get back on. That's like you break your leg and, or you're in a car accident. Like you have to be in a boot or you have to go get your car fixed and deal with all that, but you can get back on track. And then I talk about the little everyday thises that we all have, like you spill coffee on your outfit, <laughs> change your clothes, you know. Exactly. You've written two books, your first, which is titled, This Is Not the End, Strategies to Get You Through the Worst Chapters of Your Life. I read it over the weekend, and wow, powerful book. And all I can say is you've had a few chapters of thises. Since the age of five, you started training to make the Olympics as a gymnast, and you were really, really good getting onto the U.S. gymnastics team. What was that experience like? It was an amazing way to grow up. You know, there's been so much in the news about how difficult it is on athletes and they give up their childhoods and all. And I think I went through that as a child to questioning, and this is my whole life, am I missing out on high school football games? Am I missing out on all the other things that young children do? But I truly believe it was a magical way to grow up. I moved away from home by the, when I was 13 and into the Olympic Training Center. So my coaches became my parents. I was around other elite athletes who we're just so smart and working so hard. It just changes you to your core. 
I always say, well, my friends were studying Japan or Hungary or Germany. I was there. You were there. <laughs> so I, I wasn't the best student, didn't make straight A's, but I had a wonderful life experience and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, you were training for the Olympics, but sadly that Olympic dream never came true. Take us back. What happened? I was a very strong athlete and I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Those years, your body changes a lot. Your brain changes a lot. I just had my best year in 1983. I was on the U.S. team. I got to travel. Mary Lou Retton and I roomed together. I mean, we, I was at the top of my game and I had a great year. But making the U.S. team back then, you're in the top 20 in the U.S. Making the Olympics, you're in the top six. And while Mary Lou and I may have roomed together, it's because my maiden name was Rofi and we were Rofi and Retton. It was not because we were number one and two. I was not number two. Um, there were girls who were better than me on that year. And I also bombed one of the meets at trials leading up to the Olympics. I bombed a meet. I had grown a little bit. I wasn't in the best shape. I had some injury. I saw I was coming back from, and I just had a bad year and a bad few months. And that's all it takes mm -hmm. to knock you out because the Olympics is once every four years. And as a gymnast, you change a lot in four years. So now you see them coming back more often. But back then it was really unheard of. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit. You end up going to... Louisiana State University, and yet again, sadly, another injury sidelines you. And you went from being this top NCAA recruit to working in the athletic laundry room while on crutches, no less. What did that do to your psyche? It was not good. No. <laughs> I uh, tell the story sometimes that I would get up in the morning and I'd like take two Percocets with a shot of Jägermeister. It was not my proudest moments. <laughs> but I was in a really difficult spot because I had gone, like you said, from being this, and I identified as a gymnast. I identified as an, an elite athlete. And you think about it now with kids today. I mean, then it was my bumper sticker and it was my sweatshirt, you know, but now it's all their social media, their Instagram. I mean, it was how I identified. So having that taken from me and being on crutches and in a bad space, I really didn't know who I was. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went through a lot of that. Have I just wasted my whole friggin' life doing this sport? And why? Well, I missed out on everything. I just went through a really difficult time, like many young athletes do, questioning the decisions that I'd made and questioning what it was all worth and how I ever got here and what in the world was I going to do going forward? Because it was all I knew. It was gymnastics. You do go forward. And the next chapter is one that actually you and I have in common. Yes. Both TV news anchors. You were hugely successful. You were an Emmy Award winning anchor to also being named Charleston, South Carolina's favorite news anchor for 15 years. I just had to say that with a Southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> but as sometimes happens in TV, as we both know, the rug got pulled out from underneath you. What happened? I found a new passion. I loved television like you. I mean, it's infectious and it was a wonderful place to be. I do say I was sort of a big fish in a little pond. I ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. I stayed there a long time. I fell in love with the community. They fell in love with me. But then at one point, you know, I was turning 40, which in the, back then seemed old. I had a time in my 30s where they just went what I call younger and blonder. Even though I've won Charleston Favorite News Anchor many times, a young woman came into the newsroom and she you know, promoted herself and pushed and said, I won't have to take a dinner break. I won't have to go home and feed kids. I, I can be here all the time and I will do it for less. I made too much money for a small market and it was a smart business decision probably for them. Maybe not a smart, popular decision for the, the viewers, 
But it was a time when there was corporate wide layoffs and they walked me into the office and he just said the sentence, we are exercising the option in your contract to let you go without cause. And I had just won Charleston's favorite news anchor for the seventh time the night before. So I honestly thought he was calling me in there to give me like some congratulations, Nina, right? How great I was. Right. No. Oh my gosh. No. And it was a kick in the gut. It knocked the wind out of me. I mean, they just handed me a box with my stuff in it. And Mm. I was full makeup to do the news for the day. And I just remember sitting in my car with my box of stuff from my desk. I haven't been at that TV station for 10 years thinking, what do I do? I mean, I had two small children at home, couldn't face them or the nanny and didn't know what to do. And I went and walked up and down the beach and I walked up and down that beach on a cold February day trying to figure out how I'd gotten there once again and had I wasted all this time and <laughs> what the heck was I going to do next? It was everything I knew. I mean, I was back in that space again in my head. You do pick yourself back up again. You go across the street, as we say in TV land, to another station. Again, huge success until one fateful day when another this chapter happened. Let's talk about Sam. So this was my most difficult chapter. And it took me you know, 15 years later to write the book and really put it out there to the world. Like many moms, I went to pick up my kids from the school bus one day. It was at my dear friend's house, who was also my co-anchor's house. You know, the story's never easy to share, uh, but it's important to this many years later, because what happened was in the commotion of so many children being at a bus stop, people coming and going, this sweet baby that was my best friend's baby crawled under my car. And I backed up. It was something that changed my life, all of our lives. I will say very quickly, he is in college now. Yes. He survived. He's healthy. He's in college. He's had an amazing life. But at the time, it was touch and go. We weren't sure if he would make it. And I went through, along with obviously his parents and our whole community, this really difficult time trying to figure out how you go forward, going back and forth and trying to figure out what happened. How did I get here? You know, I've gotten mad at God. How could God let this happen? They were such wonderful people. I was worried I'd ruin their life. I'd ruin their family. All of the things that we beat ourselves up about and through a good therapist and with them holding hands, walking down the halls of those hospitals and going through this together, we all got through it. And as he healed, which he did, he was out of the hospital in a matter of weeks During those weeks and in the months that followed, I went into a really dark place. I had a very difficult time reconciling how this had happened, my part in this. And it was an accident. And someone who saw it from across the street filed the police report and put it all in there. I mean, a baby crawls under a car. It's not like I could have seen it in a rearview mirror. These things happen. But I really had a difficult time because I didn't want it to be part of my story, as you and I both say. And as we talk about things, I didn't want this to be part of my story. Who would? (laughs) Unlike the other things that had happened in my life, I just didn't want to go on. I'm like, if this is who I have to be now, then I just don't want to be this. I thought my children would be better off without me. I thought this community and my, and like my husband, and I had a new husband at the time. I'd gone through a divorce and just gotten remarried. I thought, oh, he's not that, he's only been in it for a year. He'd be better off without me. Like everybody would be better off without me. And I just couldn't, figure out where that fit and through good therapy and a lot of other things that I was very fortunate to have in my life and to do in my life, I ended up going back on the air. Right. I went back on the air with my co-anchor and we, for a year, sat side by side every night. 
showed the community what it looked like to get through something horribly difficult together and with love. And it was just one of those times where it went from news trucks on my front lawn. I mean, think about it. I was a news anchor. And so I was used to being on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. So to have news trucks on my front lawn and me to be the news story was something I wasn't willing in my brain to let be part of me. I just wanted, I, I couldn't find a way out. It was my reality. I went back on the air for a year. So thankful and so full of gratitude that I made it through that very public pain and very public shame, all of the things that go with that. Because once I went back on the air, it was, you know, it was no longer the news story. People go on. I just went on to being me again and had to figure out quietly in my own head how to make that part of me and be happy with who I was and what I was going to give back to the world. And years later, when I wrote the book, I realized I needed to give this back to the world because a lot of people, especially now with social media, all of our pain is public. Everybody's news is out there. It's very difficult to get through something like that when the whole world's talking about it. You don't have to be a news anchor to be in the headlines. And that's one of the things that I think is really important about your book is these real life coping strategies. Not everybody's going to go through that kind of a traumatic experience. But one of the things that you do suggest is having to figure out how you're going to fit this into your head. So for you, how did you go about fitting Sam's accident into your head? I had a very good therapist. That always helps. (laughs) Yes. There are four steps. And I I talk about these four steps from the stage, not always using this as an example as the Sam this, but some of my other this is and any this that you're going through. Mm -hmm. And something that were really important was being able to pull back, zoom out and get some perspective where this fit in on my timeline. I was only in my 40s at that moment. I had a whole big, long life ahead of me that I had to choose to be a part of and figure out what to do with. So that putting it on the timeline and figuring out where it's going to fit in in my story, all the blank space ahead on my timeline Mm -hmm. from in my 30s to hopefully I live to be 100 and I probably need to drink less wine and take better care of myself. (laughs) But I had to fit it into that timeline. That was one piece of it. And then the next piece of it was I had to look at what the facts actually were. Mm -hmm. He didn't die. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was an accident. The word accident was really hard for me to accept. And I had to work for a while to make that part of my language. But to look at the actual facts and go, you know, something I am still here and my kids do still need me and he is healing and the doctors are amazing. And then pull in people. People's a the big part of it. Mm-hmm. Some people in my life had to go. They just got stuck in the, in the the drama and not the trauma. And I needed people to be in the trauma with me and help. So the people who were stuck in the drama, I needed to get out of my life. Yeah. And then I needed to pull people in. I needed to ask for help, which was really difficult for me. I'm not good at that, but I had to one, you know, find a therapist. I talk about that a lot because I'm very pro-therapy. And for anybody listening, if you go to a therapist, therapy is like dating. If you go to one you don't like, don't, don't go on one. a second date. Don't go on a second date. There's a lot out there. Find someone else who works with you better. Anyway, so the people piece is number four. Pull in people you need. Get rid of people you don't need. You know, lean on people. My spouse was amazing. My ex-husband had to help with the kids. I mean, it took a village. Uh, and my co-anchor and his wife, like we had to do this together. So the people were important. And then the last piece is that story, that language. And the words I was using in my head were so, so important because what happens in your head comes out of your mouth and becomes your story. That piece of it was really important to get to the word accident, that Mm -hmm. he was healing, that there were prayer vigils and everyone was pulling for him and I was praying for him and that the 
doctors were performing miracles and that amazing things were happening. That became the story. Mm -hmm. And as we all said those words, granted, we had a platform and we were on TV saying those words as we would give the community updates on his, you know, progress. But that became the story of the community coming together, going through this together, healing, amazing doctors, his strength, what a great kid he was. Like he was 11 months at the time. And that's so tiny to think about now that he's off in college. So those four things, put it in that timeline, look at just the facts, make sure you pull in the right people, and then make sure the language in your head, that story you're telling yourself is what comes out of your mouth and becomes the story. But you bring up a very important point, which is not only the story that you're telling yourself in your head, but you also advise come up with a script as to what you want to say when people ask because they will. And if you're consistent with that script, not only does that help you emotionally, you're still protecting yourself, but you're being authentic and you're being honest, but come up with a script. And I think that is so important for people to do. That's probably the chapter I get the most comments on from people who really need help. I always say chapter six is my favorite chapter. I call it a script to protect yourself because people will come up to you and say, how are you? And even that sentence, think about three people listening. Think of anything horrible you've gone through, a death in the family, a divorce, an accident. You don't even know how to answer that because there's not a good answer. How are you? If you say, I'm doing great, they're like, oh, she's in denial. If you say, oh, I'm struggling, they're like, oh, she's not getting help. She's, there's no good answer. One of the things that I talk about in the book and that I really believe is so important is to come up with a script to protect yourself. And there's two versions. There's a version for people who are in your inner circle. And there's a version for people who are outside your inner circle because people are truly well-meaning. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that every time they say, how are you? A little piece of you relives the thing that you're trying not to think about every second of the day. People are well-intended. They want to say nice things. They want to make you feel better, but they don't realize that every single time they say that to you, they're opening up that wound again and you're having to deal with it. So creating a script for both your immediate folks who are around you and those who are in your outer circle too is really key. And it's something like, thank you so much for asking. I appreciate your concern. I'm not ready to talk about it right now, or I'm not comfortable talking about it yet, but thank you for your concern. And you can keep saying it over and over. They get the picture sooner or later, but you need something where you don't have to relive it and tell the story. You can't even tell the story to yourself in your own head. The idea that you could say it out loud and try to make somebody else feel better because they want to feel better too. It's just messy. So there's a whole chapter on how to create that script to protect yourself. It really is about you taking control of the situation to the best of your ability. And that's not always easy to do. You mentioned a little while ago about the different versions of yourself and the identity of being this elite gymnast and then this award-winning news anchor and how important it is to understand that there was a you before this. That's the old version. And then there's a you after this, a new version. And sometimes it's hard to let go of that old version of you. How do you move forward, Nina? Often people talk about the different stages of grief. You know, it's when you get to the acceptance after the denial and the anger and all the other things. Um, That acceptance piece is key. But really to move forward, it's the concept of, you know, you have to get to the point where you love the person that you were and you're going to figure out a way to be someone else who you love. And I really think it's an opportunity because at this moment, when something happens in your life, you have the chance to go be something new, do an update, (laughs) change who you are into something else that you like, because no one's going to look at you weird and go, why is she doing things differently? You get a pass. 
to totally change who you want to hang out with, change your career, change how you dress, change how you treat people. You have a pass when some when a big this comes into your life. And it is an opportunity to look at your life and go, well, if I had a fresh start right now, what would it look like? What could it look like? What do I want to be in this next version of me? You can choose to make your life into something new. And I look at the opportunity to do that several times in my life. Yes. And I have changed a lot through those. I've gone through some interesting changes of the people and the places and the, and the ways in which I interact with people. You get to do a reset. As you said earlier, you did go back on the air with your co-anchor for a year and you made a decision to give yourself that one year and then you decided to leave TV. And that led you to your next chapter of being in corporate America. Talk about resilience. You shined yet again in this arena. You went into tech. Where did that interest come from? So it was uh, scary. Yes. The interest came from friendships and a lot of research. I knew I wanted to get out of television. I was finished being in the spotlight and I needed to give myself a break. I knew that. Like I needed to give myself a break from having to be on three times a day, every day. You know, television being the main anchor in a small station, you're in every ribbon cutting and every everything. I needed a break. But when I looked at a few things, one, what I was good at, I met with some different people and thought, could I do marketing? What would that look like? And I met with someone who I admired in that space. And Could I be one of those people who advises Similar to what you do with executives, I was going to do it to lawyers, work with lawyers on how they present their case, how they work with the media, how they interact with the PR teams. And then I also had this opportunity with a guy who had start, done a startup, a tech startup in the healthcare space. And he was at a point where he's like, I need to do something with video. I need to use video to explain healthcare. Who could I get to do that? And so we had sat on some charity boards together. We had known each other. I admired him. He admired me. And that became a conversation. I just thought I was going to do the video and the communications piece. I'm like, I can totally do that. But you, like me, Liz, I'm sure you're the same. One of the things, if you're good on television, you can learn fast. Mm-hmm. You know, one day. You have no choice. <laughs> right. One day you're covering the National Hot Air Balloon Championships. And the next day you're covering a, a racial shooting. Like you have to like switch your brain and learn everything you can as quickly as you can about something. Yeah. So I knew I had that. So I jumped in with this great opportunity. I did do my homework. There was money in healthcare and tech. You know, I knew what a startup was and I knew what options were. And I was like, I could truly change my life if I put everything into this. Like, this is a cool opportunity. I was just cocky enough to go, I'm smart enough to figure this out. (laughs) And then that role kept expanding and I was running culture. And then when it came time to take the company public, I was running marketing and communications and learning about an IPO as I did a roadshow. Like, it was really a fascinating time. But there's something like, you know, there's something about the career I'd had in journalism, Mm -hmm. being able to learn very quickly about anything you throw at me and something about being a gymnast, falling on my face and standing up and going, ta-da, and keep going. That combination of skills along with the tough stuff that I've gone through that made it the perfect storm. And I found myself with the opportunity to build up others. I'm like, we got this. Come on. You're smart. You've got this. Nobody else knows this better than you do. I was became that person in the room. And it became a great opportunity once again for the combination of experience and skills that I had to come together. And we had a hugely successful IPO. That 12 years in that space really gave me the opportunity to learn the corporate world and just learn from some of the best and brightest. But there is something about walking into a room full of people where you are not the smartest person. And there's so much energy and excitement and 
like hunger to learn more in that space where you really have the opportunity to grow yourself and to be part of something cool. And I just took advantage of that to the fullest. Looking back on your life, what do you think has been the biggest risk you have ever taken? Oh, that by far was the biggest risk, getting out of television and trying to do something in tech. I remember the night I told my parents, at a, we had them over for dinner, and I had my three little kids seated at the table, my husband and I. I remember she said, you can't do that. You can't quit your job. You won't be able to do that. And my husband kicked her under the table. I love your <laughs> and, husband. <laughs> yes. And he was like, yes, she can. She's really smart. Would you stop it? But yeah, that was by far the, the biggest risk. But again, I had gone through such a dark time. And thought at that point, everything was extra. Every birthday, every holiday, until to this day, because I really, I had suicidal ideation for a while. I truly didn't want to be here. So every holiday, every win, every loss, it's still for me, it's just a gift because I almost didn't stick around for it. Yeah. I mean, you talk about literally inches away from stepping out into traffic. Oh, yeah. Because I would walk and try to get some exercise and I would walk on the busiest road and I would think about just what if I just stepped off this curb, it would all be over. I could stop thinking about this. Like my, I just needed my brain to stop. I was in my own space. And then same thing, I'd stand in front of the mirror, even when I got back on TV with a razor in my hand and go, if I just slice up my face, I won't be pretty and they won't want me. Like I, I really went through a time where I just couldn't figure a way forward. And it is situational PTSD. I mean, a lot of people go through different types of depression and different things. I was caught between, you know, a rock and a hard place and in a scary place in my head. And that's why I wrote this book, because I needed someone to tell me how to move forward. Just give me something to do. I was not okay with therapists saying, what's your happy place? (laughs) Like, I lasted a second in that. Like, yeah, there's no happy place. (laughs) Not right now. (laughs) I ran over a beautiful baby. I really went through this time of being ready to be gone. And I really believe that there's not a whole lot written. And there are things now, there's a lot of books and great things out there, but I wanted to write the book that I couldn't find in this back in the, on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. (laughs) Because when you're in the middle of this and someone hands you a PTSD workbook, that's eight inches thick, that's the last thing you want to do. Or if you're in the middle of a, this and somebody else is telling you their story, I'm like, I don't care about your story. I can't even think about your story. My story is horrible enough whatever you're going through. So this book is really written for the people who are in the trenches of it and just need that. Someone needs to throw them a line. Someone needs to help them get to the other side of this thing that they're in right now. Well, thankfully you are around because you are offering so much to the world. You are a keynote speaker, best-selling author, podcast host, the CEO of your own communications company. You generously give of your time on several boards, including the Alzheimer's Association. What has surprised you most about your life thus far? We know life's not going to be a straight line and there's going to be plans that don't go as planned. There's several analogies. Had I known there'd be so many plot twists, I always thought I was so good at planning. I mean, I would plan things out and reverse engineer things. I truly thought I could make things happen. But no matter how committed you are, how kind you are, how good you are, bad things happen to good people. Life happens. We all went through a pandemic. My biggest surprise has been, wow, you really can't plan. The best thing you can do is plan for the unexpected. And that's a lot of what I coach now. I like to say my life has this GPS, like my internal, like the universe has a GPS and mine just keeps recalculating route, recalculating route. 
recalculating. Route. I can hear that in my head. I love that. <laughs> Sometimes I pretend it's Waze and it's like a British accent. <laughs> I just switch up the speaker on Waze in my head and go, oh, here we go again. We're recalculating route. But that's what life is about, recalculating. And this is mm-hmm. not the end, as you say. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to learn more about Nina's podcast, her fantastic books, and the work she's doing now in the world, you can go to her website. It's ninasassamanpogue.com. And that's a long name, ninasassamanpogue.com. We will have that for you in our show notes. Nina, I can't thank you enough for being here today because you are living proof that this doesn't have to define us and we can go on living a successful best life. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. And I love your wonderful, successful life, too, and following you. I appreciate you having me on today. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. Nina shares many wonderful quotes, and I chose one of them from her book. It's from Carl Bard, and this is what it says. Though no one can go back and make a brand new start, anyone can start from now and make a brand new beginning. May each of you find the courage and the resilience to create a new beginning and live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.